0: Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast newscast. Colette and Tom here to take you through the latest media law headlines. We've got a number of judgments from the Court of Appeal, more Prince Harry news and further commentary on the effectiveness of UK libel laws. But I want to start with the two Just Stop Oil protesters who scaled the bridge at the Dartford crossing, closing it to traffic for more than a day and a half who have just been refused permission to appeal against their sentences. Morgan Trowland was jailed for three years and Marcus Decker for two years and seven months. Counsel for the protesters argued these sentences were unprecedented and disproportionate for non-violent protest. Speaking for the courts, Lady Justice Carr disagreed. She said this protest was of a wholly different nature and scale to the many non-violent protests of conscientious activists up and down the country exercising their rights, freedom of expression and assembly on a daily basis. While she admitted that the sentences were severe, she said that the courts had concluded that they were not manifestly excessive, nor did they amount to a disproportionate interference with the rights of freedom of expression and assembly. Tom, do you agree?
1: Nope. Nope. Uh, Okay, so it's one thing that the government hates it when protesters disruptively protest against their policy or their actions. It's quite another when the courts join in with the government side. Um, Protest in this country used to be difficult. It's become an awful lot more difficult in recent times. And there have been numerous reports of individuals arrested for wholly peaceful yet slightly disruptive protests. Um, and in some cases, being prosecuted, therefore. Um, there were some accounts I read the other week of individuals who'd been protesting in Westminster Uh, They'd been protesting on the pavement, had not been getting an awful lot of attention. They stepped into the road and within minutes were arrested um, and carted away. And that was the end of the protest. Now, there are, of course, the new Public Order Act, the new uh, uh, public order offences that have been uh, rushed through Parliament by this government to make it even easier to stop people from protesting. But the background to all of this is that opportunities for meaningful peaceful protest are being severely limited and protest is by its nature disruptive um it is trite to talk about the suffragette movement when we talk about protests but i feel we have to do trite things sometimes in order to remind us just how important freedom of political speech is in this country and i'm a privacy lawyer mainly you know this i'm the i'm the guy who comes in and says sometimes free speech can be curtailed for the in order to protect privacy um but when you're talking about political speech it is of a different order of magnitude now the suffragettes were arrested incarcerated taken away pilloried vilified for their disruptive, though often, not always, but often, purely peaceful protests, handcuffing themselves to things and chaining themselves to stuff and so forth. We look back now, and I don't think many people would say that that cause and those protests were not wholly justified, because the way women were being treated as second-class citizens in this country, in political terms, was wrong. We now have climate change protesters, and they are trying to draw the public attention to the damage that fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry is doing to the world. This has been scientifically proven. There are no rational human beings that disagree with the scientific facts on this. So the question is... When does protest become so unacceptable you have to send the protesters to jail? Where do you draw that line? Do you draw that line at violent protest? Well, I would certainly draw the line at violent protest. I don't think that it would be acceptable to commit acts of violence against individuals. But these protesters did not. They scaled a bridge. They scaled a bridge and sat there. And this caused a degree of disruption for around about a day and a half while the police tried to work out how to remove them uh, and to do so in a way that was safe. Now that is classic disruption. But does a day and a half's worth of disruption to traffic on a single bridge in a single city in this United Kingdom constitute a reason to send someone to prison for three years. Um, I find it really quite chilling the way the Court of Appeal manipulates the statistics in order to lend more credence to its judgment. And I'm I'm not mincing my words here. I think that's what the Court of Appeal is doing. The Court of Appeal says that 564,942 vehicles were subjected to disruption and that the disruption involved came to a minimum of 60,547 hours. Now, why is the Court of Appeal saying that there was a minimum disruption time of 60,547 hours? That's just shy of seven years. Not a single driver or passenger Was delayed for seven years. That is obviously not correct. What the Court of Appeal is doing is adding up the total amount of hours of disruption and multiplying it by the number of vehicles to say this is the total number of hours that humanity lost to this protest. But those hours all ran concurrently. Uh, And so it is misleading, in my view, to start bandying about figures of, oh, there were seven years' worth of disruption, so jailing a person for three years suddenly seems proportionate. This was a day and a half's worth of disruption, for which there are going to be hundreds of times that spent in prison by these protesters. It sends a very clear message. Do not disrupt traffic in the course of your protest against oil. What is the biggest polluter? It's traffic, right? In this country, um, apart from a few industries that will pump out vast amounts of carbon dioxide, uh, the largest domestic use of oil and gas Um, is through the petrol and diesel that we put into our cars. So, of course, that's where the protest has to be, to draw public attention to it. Now, obviously, you can detect in what I'm saying, I have a degree of sympathy with the climate cause. I've said clearly I have absolutely no time for violent protest, but I do think in this world, in this country, we have to make room for disruptive, inconvenient, yet non-violent protest, Um, and to not counter that with ever more severe, to use the Court of Appeals' words, prison sentences, Um, lest we run the risk of ending up on the wrong side of history once again, as we did um, in the early years of the 20th century with the suffragettes.
0: Moving away from the more freedom of expression um, issues here, I want to discuss uh, an article that came up in The Guardian last week, which relates to domestic violence accusations and the apparent threat, as the author frames it, of libel laws silencing people's freedom of, of expression. This piece was written by an author who was unable to publish their biographical accounts of their experience growing up in a violent household. Editors for their book cited libel laws, and the author of the Guardian piece is also anonymous for the same reason. The author was told that because the police never found enough evidence to prosecute, the accusations in the book would be defamatory. They're claiming that they have been silenced in all of this. Do we think that that's a fair summary of how libel laws actually affect instances like this?
1: I don't. Um, I actually think it is uh, manipulative. Um, I I think this is a piece that has been very deliberately put out there by the Guardian uh, as part of a campaign to denigrate the UK's libel laws and to try to argue for um, ones that are less claimant friendly, we should not forget that there was already a significant change to libel laws in the 2013 Defamation Act to make them less claimant friendly, largely at the behest of the media. It's not enough, it seems. Um, My view is that from the press's perspective, it will never be enough uh, until libel laws are removed entirely. Um, It's in the press's interests for there not to be any libel laws, but uh, it, it doesn't help the press that they try to make the case themselves. So they find emotive stories where people who are deeply sympathetic characters who've undergone genuine trauma with really sympathetic, very genuine stories to tell uh, are portrayed as being the victims, not only of their abusers, but also of this horrendously abusive legal system that won't allow them to speak up for themselves and others like them. It's manipulative because it is misleading. The author that writes this, and I, I have tremendous sympathy with the personal experiences of this author, and I don't for a moment wish to uh, to make it sound like I'm making light of those experiences. I'm, I'm not. Uh, It is absolutely right that an individual should feel uh, a sense of injustice if they are silenced. I don't think this individual has been silenced. And if they have, I do not think they have been silenced by UK libel laws. Um, The first reason I don't think that they've been silenced is that they have told their story in an article. What they've not been able to do, as far as they're concerned, is tell it in a way that is not anonymized. They have been able to speak to their experiences through the act of writing this article. So they have not been completely silenced. Their speech may have been restricted, but it does not amount to silencing. The next point is a really important one, and that is that the book that this author wanted to write was not published because the publishers feared libel action. And The Guardian anonymized it, presumably because The Guardian was worried about libel action. Now, The Publishing House and The Guardian, if they were willing to take on the risk, could A, publish the story, and B, indemnify the author against any liability. Right? So, the author could well be afforded the opportunity to speak at absolutely no risk to themselves if the at least two private companies that we're talking about, who must be involved, were willing to take on some financial risk themselves. And we know that there is a cap on libel damages in this country of around about a quarter of a million pounds. So the total amount of liability that might be faced by the publishing house and the Guardian, assuming that there is one main allegation here, would be a quarter of a million pounds. These organizations, it seems, are not willing to take on that potential liability, but that, again, it's not libel law that's restricting them, it's a a commercial decision. That commercial decision may be being driven by libel law, but I suspect it isn't. And I suspect it isn't because of something that actually you yourself mentioned, Colette, when we were discussing this just before the uh, we started recording, which is the Section 4 defence, public interest. you want to say a bit more about that?
0: Well, it, yeah, it strikes me as an obvious example of when the public interest would apply and exactly what that law is meant to protect. Someone speaking truthfully about something that they experience and genuinely believing that it's in the public interest but not necessarily having the evidence to prove a truth defense um and and i wouldn't see any reason why a section 4 defense wouldn't apply in a situation like this i
1: agree with you Uh, i agree with you in principle i don't know how it might work out in practice we're not privy to enough of the facts of this particular case with just getting a single anonymized account in in, in a in a short article in the guardian to go by so, you know, we can't speak to what would definitely happen, but it sounds like the sort of circumstances where it might be in the interests of a major publisher to bring a test case on Section 4. There haven't been very many Section 4 cases. Here is one that involves a story that, as the author themselves goes, uh, says, you know, is likely to be the kind of story that reflects the experience of other people throughout the country. Why not take this one to trial? Why not see if the section for defence works? If it succeeds, then the publishers will have much more latitude to publish their stories. If it fails, well, their liability is not going to be small, but it's affordable to most major publishers. And one would think that the risk there, the risk-benefit analysis, really would come down on the side of let's indemnify the author, let's have a go at this, let's stand up for what we believe in. Um, And that is why I say this is being used cynically. Because I'm sure the publishing houses and and, and The Guardian are perfectly capable of conducting a cost-benefit analysis and coming to the same conclusion. But I suspect they would rather use this as part of a campaign to undermine libel law itself. Um, And uh, that leaves... A bad taste in the mouth.
0: Before we move on to the Court of Appeal judgments that I want to discuss today, just to briefly mention that Prince Harry's claim against the Sun publisher News Group newspapers will proceed to a full trial. Mr. Justice Fancourt allowed the litigation against NGN to proceed on Prince Harry's claims concerning unlawful intrusions, such as the alleged use of private investigators and blagging by the News of the World and the Sun journalists. However, Prince Harry's claims of voicemail interception and phone hacking at the Sun and the now defunct News of the World will not be brought to trial, as they were brought beyond the limitation period. So that's bad news for you, Tom, and the clarity that you were hoping we would get out of this, to get this, this kind of litigation and whether phone hacking falls into misuse of private information.
1: Yes, once again, the court has managed to sidestep the need to work out whether uh, the purely intrusive act of hacking a person's phone constitutes uh, a violation of privacy rights under English tort law. Um, What a shame. That was going to be the fun one. Um, But we should note that this is not a defeat for Harry. Uh, It has been portrayed as a defeat for Harry in some of the more gleeful newspapers. Um, But this isn't Harry losing, this is uh, Harry winning the opportunity to bring his case on some of the grounds that were pleaded, and that's uh, a partial victory in tort law is a significant victory at this stage, because it gets you through the door and into court. He'll be able to uh, bring that claim of course he's bringing other ones as well against other defendants in respect of other incidents and those are all separate we will try to keep you abreast on the podcast of the various different uh, Prince Harry suing newspapers bits of litigation that are going on I know there are a lot of different claims a lot of different uh, newspapers at the point at which it becomes relevant to uh, distinguish them in detail for you we will do that absolutely and, uh, explain what's going on.
0: On the 21st of July, 2023, the Court of Appeal handed down judgment in Smith and Backhouse. The judgment explains when the court will accept undertakings agreed by the parties as part of a settlement. The original harassment and privacy claim concerned a sustained campaign of online harassment, which included the creation of Twitter accounts impersonating Dr. Smith and offering sexual services to the public. The claim settled before trial with Dr Backhouse paying Dr Smith £49,975 in damages and over £70,000 in costs, as well as an agreement to certain undertakings. At the hearing, Mr Justice Nicklin gave an ex-tempore judgment rejecting three of the eight undertakings offered by Dr Backhouse. Nicklin's reasoning was that these undertakings were too broad or vague and they would be liable to lead to dispute over breach lady justice asplin with whom lord justice warby and lord justice arnold agreed explained that there was no doubt that the courts may decline to accept undertakings even where they are agreed between the parties as part of a settlement However, the circumstances in which the court may reject such undertakings are limited, and therefore the question of whether Mr Justice Nicklin's identification of the limited circumstances was wrong in law. We've got a bit more clarity as to as and when a court will step in on undertakings, and in this instance, Dr Smith has got all of them.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, the I mean, what's important here um, is the... You know, Those listening understand that undertakings are different from contractual promises. Um, You can promise a person that you will not do this or not do that um, as a part of a contract. And if uh, those promises are breached, then you are potentially liable for breach of contract and thus for damages. Undertakings given to the court in the context of litigation have a different force. They are more powerful in that they have the same force as an injunction, so as if the court imposed those uh, sanctions upon you, those conditions upon you. Um, It's just that you've thought of them yourself or in consultation with the uh, claimant and you're agreeing that they are reasonable in the circumstances. So you give those undertakings. And if those undertakings are breached, then uh, you are liable to be committed to prison for contempt. Um, it's a a lot more uh, severe. Uh, That's a word for the day, isn't it? The sanctions are much more severe for uh, breach of undertakings than for breach of contract. Now, I have quite a lot of sympathy with uh, Mr Justice Nicklin in this particular case. His concern was that the uh, undertakings that were proposed and the language that they were proposed in were so broad that... If it was entirely likely there could be disputes arising over whether or not they had been breached. Um, And the Court of Appeal disagrees um, because it disagrees that breadth is a problem. Um, And as a matter of doctrinal law, the Court of Appeal has its precedents and it comes to a fair conclusion on that point. But what it doesn't do is really deal with the concern that I think Mr. Justice Nicklin has here, which is that the court is being exposed to a situation where it might not be able in practical terms to enforce the undertakings. Um, Now, where I think that this has a broader resonance is that I've seen the courts in recent years issuing injunctions that are themselves really quite broad. And the incident that springs to mind for me, that this goes back a few years, and is of a rather a rather niche regional concern, um, is uh, to the political dispute in sheffield around the felling of trees by the council and its contractors now this happened some years ago and actually there's recently been a a public and rather humiliating apology given out by the new leader of the council um who replaced uh the previous leader who resigned in disgrace um following this entire scandal Uh, But uh, in the course of that dispute, you had a lot of uh, concerned citizens who were up at the crack of dawn trying to prevent their local beloved trees from being hacked to pieces by the contractors. And the response of the council at the time was uh, very dismissive of the protesters' concerns. And they ran off to court and got injunctions. And some of these injunctions were taken out uh, with notice and some of them without notice against persons unknown and drafted in very broad terms to prevent any kind of getting involved with disputes. Some of the injunctions that I heard about were even prohibited publicizing future protests. So people who uh, who were seen as potentially troublemaking organizers of these protests were not permitted to post on social media uh, about future ones or they would be liable to be arrested and committed to prison for breaching the injunction. Now, the High Court was giving out these injunctions. The High Court, at the behest of Sheffield City Council a few years ago, in very broad terms. And I'm with Mr Justice Nicklin on the principle that courts shouldn't be either giving out injunctions or uh, allowing undertakings which have the same force as injunctions in terms that are so broad that they either are unenforceable or would be disproportionately uh, impactful if enforced. Mm. Um, So on the particular facts of this case, I'm not in any position to dispute the Court of Appeals reading of the law. I'm not a a, a specialist on the very niche area of uh, the law relating to undertakings and injunctions. Um, what I can say is that as a matter of principle, I can absolutely see where Mr. Justice Nicklin's concerns come from. And I share some of those concerns. Uh, and I would like to see a situation where the courts are more discerning in the sorts of injunctions and undertakings mm-hmm. they're prepared to accept. If nothing else, the fact that Mr. Justice Nicklin has taken the time to really scrutinize these proposals in detail, Uh, in the course of the litigation is, I think, a good thing. And uh, it, it, to me, shows diligent and uh, thoroughly commendable judicial practice. I'd like to see more of it.
0: Moving on to the Court of Appeal decision in Dyson and Channel 4, which was delivered on the 25th of July 2023. This related to a decision by Mr Justice Nicklin in October, delivered in October of 2022, in which he said that Dyson himself was not referenced in the programmes. The Court of Appeal disagreed, saying that while the broadcast was not centred On the company's all James Dyson himself, the broadcast had at least the theme that Dyson was a leading British company which sold products manufactured by the company that was subject to the complaint in Malaysia, whose employees suffered abuse and inhumane working conditions, and that Dyson himself should have known that this was happening and stopped it. So the appeal is now going back to a first instance hearing where it will be decided uh, on and continue through the normal rounds of the defamation process. The final Court of Appeal judgment I want to mention today, it was delivered on the 26th of July 2023 in Wright and McCormack. The Court of Appeal confirmed that Dr. Craig Wright was entitled to only nominal damages, despite finding that Mr. McCormack had caused serious damage to his reputation. The Court of Appeal was asked to decide whether general damages in libel can properly be reduced to reflect a claimant's litigation misconduct, here the fraudulent exaggeration of the claim. Although novel, the Court of Appeal determined that there was nothing wrong in principle with the first instance judge taking into account post-publication events that shape their own judgments in relation to the original acts and using that to mitigate the damages. The previous cost orders demanding that Mr McCormack pay Dr White's pretrial costs, which are expected to be more than one million, were unaffected. Okay, that's everything that I wanted to discuss today. Thank you very much, Tom, for your wonderful insights, as always. Thank
1: you very much, Colette. Always a pleasure.
0: And we will be back around the start of the new legal term, which begins at the start of October, with more newscasts. As ever, follow us on Twitter for updates between now and then. And we will see you at the end of the summer. Thanks very much. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.